Hello, and welcome to Historical True Crime, the podcast where we take a look back at history's darkest crimes and criminals. I'm your host, Lizzie, and today is episode 43. For today's episode, we're going to be in the United States in perhaps what is my favorite era, the Gilded Age. Today's episode is on the trial of Harry Thaw and the murder of Stanford White. The story goes something like this. Two rich and respected men, one stunning woman. A terrible murder was committed in front of almost a thousand witnesses at an outdoor theater in the middle of New York City, fueled by jealousy and a family history of mental illness. The subsequent 1907 trial immediately earns the moniker the trial of the century, but there'll be a second one held only a year after the initial jury deadlocks and contributes to the end of America's Gilded Age. If you're not familiar with the term the Gilded Age, let me give you some context to this period in American history. According to Smithsonian Mag, Americans saw upheavals in every aspect of daily life between the 1870s and the beginning of the 20th century, including what they wore, how they traveled, where they lived, and how they passed their free time. Modern America was ushered in, for better or worse, when the so-called Gilded Age took shape, as technology, society, and politics underwent great change. Gilded, after all, is not gold. Therefore, Mark Twain chose the term the Gilded Age to represent the period's patina of splendor and the unstable underpinnings supporting industrialists' enormous acquisition of wealth. The phrase refers to the economic boom that occurred between the end of the Civil War in 1865 and again the turn of the 20th century. Although historically speaking, the period ends around 1910, it was nevertheless very prosperous until the late 1920s. The great burst of industrial activity and corporate growth that characterized the Gilded Age was presided over by a collection of colorful and energetic entrepreneurs who became alternatively known as captains of industry and robber barons. The Gilded Age came to represent a period of obscene materialism and blatant political corruption. And it's with this backdrop that our story begins. But who are the players in this tragic story? Well, we'll start with Harry Thaw. According to Conleaf for Headstuff.org, Harry Kendall Thaw was born in 1871 and was the oldest surviving child of William Thaw's second marriage to Mary Sibbett Copley. William started his career as a clerk in his father's bank, the United States Bank in Philadelphia, where his father had served as a manager. William would end up becoming a multi-millionaire railway tycoon after having the foresight to leave his canal boat company at the ideal moment to enter the rail industry. William Thaw is currently listed among the top 100 richest Americans of all time after accounting for inflation. Thus, any child of his was not likely to lead a routine life. Sadly, Harry would turn out to be the exact wrong type of person to have access to this kind of privilege and wealth. Harry began to exhibit signs of mental instability at a young age, which his mother, whose family had a history of mental illness, tried to hide. His upbringing was marked by bouts of extreme rage. 
during which he would do things like sweep his dinner off the table and kick his meals into the fireplace. He also experienced chronic insomnia and sleepwalking. Because of his poor behavior, he was expelled from many of the top private schools. But despite his dismal academic history, his name and wealth earned him admission to Harvard University. He would go on to claim that he spent his time at Harvard studying poker, but he'd also engage in excessive drinking and cockfights. He was eventually expelled with prejudice for sexually assaulting several of his male classmates. Harry bounced between Pennsylvania and New York after being expelled from Harvard, but he was resolved to establish himself in New York among people who were entitled to hold the highest positions of social significance. His membership requests to the Metropolitan Club, Century Club, Knickerbocker Club, and Players Club, all elite men's clubs in the city, were all turned down. He engaged in behavior unbefitting a gentleman by riding a horse up the steps into the Union League Club of New York, the only club that had accepted his membership, and this act resulted in his only membership being abruptly terminated. Harry was convinced that the reason for all of these rejections was one person, the renowned architect Stanford White, who would not approve Harry's admission to these exclusive clubs. Despite his reputation for preferring his women far younger than was deemed typically respectable, Stanford White represented everything that Harry was not, mainly well-liked and well-respected. Stanford was the son of a Shakespearean scholar who didn't leave his son with any money, but did provide him a network of contacts in New York's social and artistic circles. As a result, he was able to work as Henry Hobson Richardson's apprentice, who was considered at the time the best architect in the country. Stanford was a motivated and talented student who spent six years learning from Richardson before launching his own business in New York with two partners. Hundreds of municipal, commercial, resort, and club buildings, as well as opulent private mansions, were designed by his firm, McKim, Mead, and White. The Triumphal Arch at Washington Square, which was erected in 1889 for the centenary celebration, and Madison Square Gardens, the second building on the site to bear that name, which was later replaced once again in 1925, were all notable works by Stamford. But he had a dark side, an unquenchable desire for young girls. He was a predatory seducer of underage girls, specifically looking for poor actresses or dancers. And Evelyn Nesbitt was the ideal candidate she joined the Broadway chorus for the musical Floridora in July 1901, and this is where Stanford first laid eyes on her. As he lavished her with gifts and arranged for her mother and brother to move in with her in a suite at the Wellington Hotel, the 47-year-old's involvement at first appeared almost paternal. Stanford befriended Evelyn and her mother, pretending to be a benefactor and then arranged for her mother to visit family outside of town. He then persuaded Evelyn, only 16 years old, to consume champagne, which may have also been drugged. After falling asleep, she woke up in bed next to a nude Stanford White. 
Because of Stanford's domineering nature, Evelyn agrees to keep his activities a secret, and he was able to coerce her into being his discreet mistress. Their relationship would last for three years, but Evelyn would leave Stanford for Harry Thaw in the beginning of 1905. Harry, like Stanford, had seen Evelyn perform on stage and had been pursuing her at every opportunity. Harry would take Evelyn to Europe, where he allegedly started beating and whipping her. Evelyn was made to recite intimate details of her prior relationship with Stanford by Harry, who developed an obsession with it. Harry grew obsessed and convinced he had to avenge Evelyn's humiliation and purge the world of a monster. When Evelyn returned home, she informed her friends of what had occurred in Europe, and it was at this point she was made aware of the rumors of Harry's behavior. Harry, though, miraculously found a way to re-enter Evelyn's life. It also helped that Evelyn was in a pretty precarious financial and emotional situation. Her jobs were drying up, her mother had remarried, and due to Harry's behavior, had cut Evelyn out of her life. And the reputation she had built up as Stanford White's mistress made it unlikely she would find a respectable husband. So Evelyn will wed Harry on April 4th, 1905. Harry would pick Evelyn's wedding outfit, which was black rather than white. Maybe an omen for what was yet to come. The Thaws would relocate to Pittsburgh, where Harry's mother ruled over the home with an iron fist. With a husband who treated her like royalty in public, but beat her in private, Evelyn felt trapped in their expectations of proper wifely behavior. Due to Harry's persistent drug use, his mental instability was getting worse. He was certain that Stanford White had hired mobsters to track and kill him. He had even begun to carry a gun with him wherever he went for his own protection. The night of the murder, Harry and Evelyn were eating at Martin's restaurant before the premiere of Mamselle Champagne above the garden. They noticed Stanford White was also there and the 52-year-old architect was instantaneously killed when Harry approached Stanford with a pistol during the show's last act, I Could Love a Million Girls. He would fire three shots at point-blank range, striking Stanford twice in the face and once in the left shoulder. According to press accounts from the time, Harry declared while standing over Stanford's body, I killed him because he ruined my wife. Because of Harry's wealth, he did not get the same experience as normal people when he was taken to prison and denied bail. A picture of him from the time depicts him enjoying a meal that was cooked in a restaurant while standing in front of a real bed wearing his own clothes while in his cell. He was said to be jovial and upbeat, believing the world would view him as a hero for killing Stanford White. Following the shooting, news coverage started to spiral out of control as early as the next morning. Both the defense and the prosecution took advantage of the widespread interest in the white murder and its main suspects to feed gullible media any scoops that would benefit their respective positions in the public eye. The defense claimed that the abrupt sighting of Stanford was what induced Harry's temporary insanity. The outcome of the trial ultimately depended on the two men's moral character 
and Evelyn's testimony was also essential. It's generally agreed that Evelyn accepted an offer of compensation by the Thaw family in exchange for her testimony. She claimed that Stanford's counsel had coerced her into signing an affidavit against Harry for his conduct in Europe while testifying on the witness stand that Stanford had sexually assaulted her. A hung jury was the final outcome of this first trial. Five jurors voted not guilty, and seven jurors voted guilty, making it impossible at the time to reach a legal conclusion. Harry apparently had a temper tantrum in court because he was furious at the outcome. A second trial was held between January 1908 and February 1st, 1908. Harry entered a temporary insanity plea during this second trial. Martin W. Littleton, Harry's new principal defense attorney, who Harry and his mother had hired for around $25,000, which would be around $750,000 today, came up with his new legal plan. But Harry ended up being given a life term at the Matawan State Hospital for the criminally insane in Fishkill, New York, after being declared not guilty by reason of insanity. Due to his wealth, he was able to arrange accommodations for his comfort and obtain privileges not available to the majority of the hospital population. Harry immediately started taking measures to have himself deemed sane. In order to prove Harry's mistreatment of prostitutes in New York in the years preceding Stanford's murder, the state had to gather evidence and eyewitnesses. These instances of violence against prostitutes occurred between 1902 and 1905 and covered the time frame before and after he learned of Stanford's treatment of Evelyn, disproving the claim that this was what first caused his illness. Harry was ordered to be returned to Matawan State Hospital in August 1910 after the judge determined that his release would endanger the public. Russell William Thaw was born to Evelyn in that same year. After the trial, Evelyn was effectively dismissed from the Thaw family, along with a $25,000 parting payment, but she insisted that her son Russell was the outcome of a conjugal visit to Harry. Harry consistently denied the paternity and shunned the boy. The truth of whether Russell was Harry's son is still a mystery to this day. Harry gave up trying to get released via traditional methods in 1913 and discovered that the superintendent of Matawan State Hospital was resistant to bribery. So instead, he flees the asylum and heads north to Canada. The whole incident was very certainly planned by his mother. He fought against extradition and eventually succeeded in getting a new trial agreed upon as a requirement of his release. He was surprisingly found not guilty and no longer insane. Harry's freedom, though, didn't last long, uh, but long enough for him and Evelyn to finalize their divorce. He then met Frederick Gump, a Kansas-born 19-year-old in Long Beach, California, in December 1915 and over the course of a year persuaded the young man's family to send him to New York under the pretense that he would pay for a scholarship to the Carnegie Institute. Instead, on Christmas Eve, he used a whip to beat and sexually torture Frederick. The young man was able to flee the following day, Christmas Day, 
back to his family in Kansas, where they eventually succeeded in getting him to tell them what happened. The boy's father, a respected man, went to the police. Frederick's account was verified by the New York police, after which a warrant for Harry's arrest was issued. He was eventually detained in Philadelphia after the police discovered him trying to die by suicide. Harry was found guilty following a brief trial in which he received no public support. Harry was sent to an asylum in Philadelphia. Harry wouldn't be released again until 1924. During that time, Evelyn had appeared in five films based on her relationships with Stanford and Harry and published two autobiographies. Harry would also release his own book, The Traitor, in 1926. It attempted to present Harry as a heroic figure who shielded women from Stanford White's subsequent assaults, but in reality, it was just a poorly written mess. In the 1920s, Harry made an unsuccessful attempt to get into the filmmaking business, but a heart attack would claim his life in 1947 at the age of 76. Russell, his son, now a celebrated World War II pilot, received nothing from his will, but he did give 10,000 of the remaining 1 million to Evelyn, who was now working as an art instructor. Evelyn would wed Jack Clifford, her dance partner, following her divorce from Harry, although their union would only last a few years, and she would never marry again. A movie starring Joan Collins as Evelyn, The Girl in the Red Velvet Swing, was released in 1955 and reignited interest in the Evelyn, Harry, and Stanford affair. Evelyn was 74 years old at the time the movie was released and was content to live a tranquil life in Los Angeles. She passed away from natural causes in 1967. And that brings us to the end of the trials of Harry Thaw and the murder of Stanford White. We hope you've enjoyed this episode. If you did, please remember to review, rate, subscribe, wherever you listen to your podcasts. If you have any feedback for us or a case suggestion of something you'd like us to cover in an upcoming episode, you can reach us on Instagram at historicaltruecrimepod or by email at historicaltruecrimepod at gmail.com. And we'll see you next week for another dark and notorious case from history. We'll see you then.